Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you all. If you would join me in opening up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 12 through 17. This is the letter to the church of Pergamum, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Follow along with me as I read and open with a word of prayer. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you asking that as those who have ears to hear, God, we pray that we would hear what your spirit says to the churches. God, we pray tonight that you would be glorified in the preaching of your word. We pray that Christ would be exalted in our minds and in our hearts. And we pray that we, your people, would be edified and built up. Father, we thank you, and it's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, from the beginning of The church's inception, the people of God then, and the people of God now, and the people of God until Christ returns, will always live at odds with the world. There will always be a tension between the relationship of God's people and the world and the culture around. Members of Christ's church will be tempted to compromise, and to conform to the patterns of the world. The church and its members will be tempted to compromise and conform to the world's sinful influences and ideologies. And as hostility grows between Christ's relationship with the world, as the world's um, hostility toward the church grows, 
so do the temptations to conform and to compromise. And I'm sure the older that you are, the longer that you've been around this world and the longer that you've been around in this world as a follower of Christ, you sense that tension and you can sense that pressure as it's built up over time. Now, the primary issue facing the church at Pergamum was temptation to conform and temptation to compromise to the sinful influences around them. And this temptation came in the face of great persecution and a strongly satanic culture. And the two of those things combined made the pressure to compromise and conform for the church to grow more and more and more. But Christ's church must remain stable. And it must remain steadfast in the faith. Christ exhorts his church then, and he exhorts his church now to do just that. Remember the phrase at the beginning of verse 17, he who has an ear, which would be all of those in Pergamum, and all of us here, all of those who have an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, as we've reminded you already, these letters, yes, written to a specific church in a specific context, but it's also written for us as well. It's also written for all of Christ's church. We're all to look at these letters and to be encouraged by them and to be exhorted by them and to be warned by them as well to persevere and hold fast to Christ. And to that end, Christ seeks to stir up his church then and now to repentance and greater faithfulness to him. And he does so by commending them and confronting them, as well as promising great blessings for their perseverance. And we'll notice all of those aspects as we look at this letter in more detail. But before we do, let's look at the introduction of the letter and just notice a couple of things to the recipients of the letter and who it is that's writing the letter. Look with me again at verse 12 of chapter 2. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So two things to notice in the introduction. We have those who the letter is written to, and we have the self-identification of the one who's writing the letter. Who is it written to? Ultimately, it's written to the church in Pergamum. And not much is given about this church. Not much is given about this church, but there are a few things that we can learn from what we see in the text, and there's a few things that we can learn in considering outside sources from the text that help us get a better understanding of the world that this church is living in. So just a couple of things to note. Pergamum was the first city in Asia Minor with a temple dedicated to emperor worship and imperial cult practices. So Pergamum was devoted to the worshiping of Caesar and the emperor. And they had temples 
and practices and ceremonies and feasts dedicated to that. And along with emperor worship, Pergamum was also devoted to the worship of a number of other pagan deities. One example is Pergamum had erected a throne-like altar of Zeus. So in light of all of these pagan deities that were being worshipped, on top of the emperor or Caesar worship that was going on here, you can get a sense as to why the city that they dwell in is called the throne of Satan because of all of the paganism that is going on around it and all of the pagan practices that are involved within those deities. So that's a little bit about Pergamum and the world that this church lives in. Now, who is the letter from? Ultimately, we know as we've looked at the previous letters that Christ is ultimately writing these letters and delivering them to John through this revelation and commanding John to send these letters to these angels who will deliver the words that he tells John to write. So it's ultimately from Christ, but Christ identifies himself like he has previously with some specific imagery that relates specifically to this church. Notice what he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what does this mean? I'm sure for many of us, this imagery of a sharp two-edged sword goes to a couple of different places. But it means that he is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of man's heart and from whom no man can hide. And related to this, he's the judge presiding over the nations and presiding over his church, overseeing all that she says and does. That this imagery of this sword, this double-edged sword, has already been referenced in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 16. But I'm sure another place in which it's referenced is one that many of your minds go to in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, which says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Again, this imagery of the double-edged sword points to the fact that Christ is judge over his church. Yes, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, is an instrument of salvation, but it is also an instrument of judgment. And Christ is presiding over this church as its judge, overseeing all that she says and does. And this, just a note, as we look at this church and all that it's going through, the imagery of a double-edged sword and Christ as the ultimate judge over this church and ultimately over the nations as well, it points us to a constant tension of two looming judgments throughout the letter. There is the judgment of the world and the church's fear of the world's judgment to some extent, but also the looming judgment of Christ 
And we'll see ultimately that while they both have some form of judgment that they bring, there is only one of those two judgments that they ought to ultimately fear. Now before we look at the specific confrontation that Christ gives and the warning that he gives, let's consider the encouragement that he gives. He commends them. Now what does he commend them for? Look at verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So he commends them. He encourages them. One, I think there's slight encouragement in the very first line or phrase there, I know where you dwell. Now for some, that is a great comfort. Those who are trusting in Christ, those who are continuing to hold fast, even in the midst of a hostile environment, knowing that Christ knows your environment, he knows the world that you're living in, and he knows that you're holding fast. He knows where you dwell. The fact that he knows that may be a great comfort, but for some who are not holding fast, who are walking in and idolatry, I imagine the very thought of Christ knowing where they dwell may come with a great sense of dread. But Christ knows where they dwell. He knows the world that they live in. Again, you see this phrase twice in this letter. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That phrase, again, is used twice. And given the context that we already looked at, considering the great amount of paganism and idol worship and emperor worship going on, within the church at Pergamum and in that city at that time, the reference to Satan's throne makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense as to why Pergamum is attributed with this place of Satan's throne. Because so much of the activity of Satan is going on around them through these various pagan worship practices and so forth. So he knows where they dwell, but he also knows specifically something else. He knows of their faith. He knows of their steadfastness in the midst of this hostile environment. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, or you could say faith in me, even in the days of Antipas. Now, Antipas, he gives as an example, as one of their brothers in Christ, who is ultimately martyred for his faithful witnessing to Christ. And even in light of a dark world, and even in light of a very hostile environment, a hostile environment that has gone to the lengths of actually killing one of their own brothers, even in light of that, you're holding fast my name. You're continuing to persevere, and you're not denying your faith in me, even in the midst of this hostility and persecution. And given the intense persecution, and given the fact that most of the Pergamum converts likely came from a lifestyle steeped in the paganism of the city, I would imagine that the pressure to compromise and the pressure to look back 
for the sake of safety and comfort would have been great. Now, how much easier could it be for us if we just go back, even just slightly, to appease the masses, to appease the city around us and its practices so that maybe we wouldn't feel as much persecution, we wouldn't feel as much hostility. I imagine that temptation was very strong. But we are told that they continued in the faith and they did not deny Christ. And brothers and sisters, Christ knows where you dwell as well. He knows that we dwell in a similar environment with similar pressures. He knows that we live in a society and a culture that is very much opposed to God and the things of God. And he knows that the pressure is great. And he knows that the pressure is only intensifying. And he knows of your faithfulness. For those of you that are holding fast. For those of you that are not compromising and not denying your faith in him. He knows of that. And just as this church is being encouraged and commended for their faithfulness. That encouragement should extend to us as well who are holding fast to Christ. Even in the midst of a deeply hostile world and society. But as you all probably know, just as the general flow of the previous letters and just from our reading, not all was well in the church at Pergamum. For next we read of the ways in which Christ confronts this church. Look with me at verse 14. He says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of of the Nicolaitans. So in his confrontation, he exposes their sin, and their sin can come in two ways. One, there's some who hold to and participate in the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And then there's also some who are allowing this false teaching to go on. There are those who actually are teaching this false doctrine and there are those who in light of that false teaching they're anticipating in it they're giving in and they're walking in agreement with what is false but then you also have those within the church who are seeing this going on and ultimately they're doing nothing about it it's similar to Ephesus in that Ephesus had a problem But the difference here is that the problem that Pergamum has is the opposite problem that Ephesus had. Ephesus was very sound and firm in their doctrine, but when it came to welcoming others in, they were very closed off, if you remember. And here in this church, they seem to be very welcoming. They're not very quick to cast those out who are teaching something different. 
but they're very welcoming, but there's also an issue here as well. When there's a clear problem with what they're teaching, they're allowing it to remain. But who are these groups? He mentions the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Who are these groups? Are they one group or are they two separate groups? You could take them as two separate groups. I'm not going to get into a a long argument for this just for the sake of time. You could argue potentially that these are two separate groups, that there's a group that's holding to the teachings of Balaam, and that there's also this other group, the Nicolaitans, who are essentially teaching the same things as this other group that's teaching the teachings of Balaam. But I think it's actually referring to one group. And the one group that it's referring to are the Nicolaitans. And the teaching, the false teaching that they're guilty of, is teaching the teaching of Balaam. Now, if you remember Balaam, this is a character, I mean a real historical figure, but a character we read of in the book of Numbers starting in chapter 22. Now, Balaam was a prophet, and Balaam was called upon by the king of Moab to curse the people of Israel. And four times, four times he asked Balaam to curse the people of Israel. And all four times he called for a curse, God answered with a blessing. So it would seem as though the king of Moab's encouragement or offer of money to Balaam for seeking to curse the people only turned out to come out to be a great blessing for the people of God. But if we go back to the story, in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, It seems as though the king of Moab in some way got a foothold on the people through some form of means. And we read here in Numbers 25, verses 1 through 3, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself with Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And ultimately later we'll hear of, in light of all this, the Lord's anger was kindled against them, and the Lord cast a plague upon the people out of judgment. And a great number of them died, and ultimately it's when Phinehas, the one who is jealous for the glory of of God, when Phinehas, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, saw what was going on, and saw this man of Israel take a Midianite woman, if you remember the story, he took a spear, and he went after the man, and into the chamber, and he pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus, the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Now, what does this have to do with Balaam and his teaching? Well, if you remember, Balaam was called upon to curse Israel, but Israel was blessed. And now we have the scene of the king of Moab finding a way to disrupt the purity of God's people. And in Numbers 31... 
after God sends vengeance upon Moab and the king and the kings of Midian, it says in Numbers 31.8, they killed the kings of Midian with the rest of their slain. Evi, Rechem, Zur, Hur, and Reba, and the five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, the son of Beor, with the sword. Now why is Balaam included here? Well, if you jump down to verse 18 of chapter 31. Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously before the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So ultimately it is somehow through the teaching or somehow through the conniving or the advice of Balaam that these women of Moab, ultimately through the teaching of Balaam, that this came through and the people of Israel and the the people of God were defiled. It's ultimately because of Balaam. And I think that's why he's referenced here. The type of thing that he did in stirring up the people of God and causing them to act treacherously before the Lord is what we see happening here in the church of Pergamum. And I think that it's being done through the Nicolaitans. Notice again what it says in Verse 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. You have some there that are teaching the very same thing that Balaam was teaching the people of Israel long ago. They're doing the exact same thing. They're encouraging the people of God. They're encouraging the church to ultimately act treacherously before the Lord and to compromise and to conform to the sinful and pagan practices of the city of Pergamum. To go back to life in Pergamum for the sake of ease and comfort and safety. So what was sinful about this teaching? Well, as we read in verse 14, they were being encouraged to participate in idolatrous feasts and fornicating with pagan practices in general. And this led to great acts of immorality, likely both spiritual through idol worship but also physical immorality and sexual immorality, as was the case with Balaam and the people of God in Numbers, chapter 25. And I think this is some more of the connection that's being drawn between those two narratives. That the people of God were being encouraged to compromise and conform to the lifestyle around them. So what does he do next? Well, he exhorts them to repent. Verse 16, therefore, repent. Repent of your sinful participation with the Nicolaitans. For those of you that are doing so. For those of you who are looking back and conforming. But also for those of you who are allowing this to go on. 
without church discipline, without punishment, allowing this false teaching to continue to go on and disrupt the holiness and the purity of the church. Repent, both of you, and hold fast to Christ. And hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to your confession. If not, he goes on to warn them, I will come soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And this is likely, this is not a reference to the second coming of Christ, his return in the consummation of all things. This isn't a reference to, you know, if they don't repent, he's going to come even sooner for all of that. This is a reference to he will come and he will enact some sort of punishment upon you for your lack of repentance. He will judge your church. And he has every right to do so as the one who yields the sword. So be warned. Repent of your sin of conforming. And repent of your sin of toleration and allowing this sinful behavior and wickedness to go on. Brothers and sisters, I know, as I mentioned earlier, we are tempted as well to conform. And as the hostility and tension grows, so will the temptation to conform. And we must repent when we do. Whether it's for the sake of ease or the sake of comfort, whatever it is, repent of your conformity to the patterns of the world and the idolatrous practices and the sinful influences that you've given into. Repent of those things. And when there isn't repentance, there ought to be church discipline. And may we be warned when church discipline is called for, when we grow laxed and we don't carry out when we ought to. That's the call to repentance and the warning that he gives this church. And in an effort to further encourage them to repent and to walk in faithfulness, Christ turns lastly to his promise of reward. Look with me at verse 17. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, i.e. the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, the one who continues to hold fast to my name, the one who repents and does these things, to the one who overcomes, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's a threefold promise here of blessing. He mentions hidden manna, he mentions a white stone, and he mentions a new name. Now, all three relate to one another in some way. The hidden manna, and we could talk about this for a very long time, all three of these blessings, we could. But just briefly, the hidden manna ultimately is pointing forward to the final fellowship with God that they'll experience at the great banquet or the marriage supper of the Lamb that he promises them. 
that they'll experience in eternal life, in the new heavens and the new earth. This is an invitation to partake in that meal with God and the rest of God's people. And then there's the reference to the white stone. Now, back then, a white stone may have referred to two different things. And I think they both relate. The white stone may have been a reference to a ticket for admission into some sort of event. And here, the white stone is that ticket for admission to the marriage supper of the Lamb and eternal life. And the significance of it being white as opposed to a different color. Back then, there was also the idea of stones being used in criminal cases. And a black stone meant you were guilty. And a white stone meant you were acquitted. So we are invited to this marriage supper. Well, we will partake of this hidden manna. And we have our ticket. We have the white stone by which we are invited to this feast. And we are invited to the presence of God, to fellowship with him for all eternity. And we enter with a white stone. We enter acquitted. We enter forgived of our sins. And we enter clothed in the righteousness of Christ. That's another way in which we can think about the whiteness that is on the stone. It points to the righteousness and the purity that we receive ultimately from Christ himself. And lastly, he mentions a new name. We enter into eternal life. We enter into the presence of God with the people of God with a new name, a new identification marker. We come as the people of God, where he is our God and we are his people. This is picked up in Revelation 22.4. If you note, in verse 17, it tells us that he will give us a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. But then at the end, in Revelation 22, verse 4, we get an idea of what that name specifically is. And they will see his face, Revelation 22, 4. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. They will be marked out with the name of God. They will be his people and he will be their God. They will be invited into his presence for all eternity to partake in this great banquet, this great feast that far surpasses any earthly temporary feast that they could have partaken in this life. And they enter acquitted. They enter redeemed. They enter forgiven. They enter justified because of the righteousness of Christ. They enter his. And these are the great blessings that await those who are trusting and holding fast to Christ. So brothers and sisters, Christ's church must remain stable and steadfast in the faith. The church then and the church now. But he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Even in the midst of great tension and turmoil between Christ's church and the world, fear the one who holds the sword. Fear him 
and his justice in comparison to all other forms of judgment. Fear him and hold fast to his name. Pray for strength and faith to persevere even in the midst of gravity and pressure to conform. And praise him for the gift of sustaining grace and the great blessings he bestows upon us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the work of Christ. We thank you that all spiritual blessings that are kept in the heavenly places for us are grounded upon his person and work and the grace that we have received through union with him. God, we pray that you would hold us fast. We pray that you would give us sustaining grace, that you would give us the strength to persevere in this life, even in the midst of a world that hates you and hates your people, that is standing in opposition to all that you hold to be true and right and beautiful, that is standing in opposition against your will and your word. And that is tempting us to conform and to go along with it. With the threat of great temporary judgments. God, I pray that you would give us sustaining grace. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. The gift of your spirit. And it is in your son's name that we pray. Amen.